This is an unplanned introduction to the political turn that you're about to listen to, and it will be short and to the point. This episode was actually recorded in stages throughout the second half of June, July and August. In this time, a lot has happened in the world, including yet another mass shooting in the USA that has rightly led to an outpouring of grief and anger. Anyone not living in the US may find it incomprehensible just how many folks are killed in such shootings each year. As of August 2019, the New York Times states that there have been 32 mass killings with guns this year alone. 32. A mass killing is when three or more people are killed by guns in a single incident, and that's according to the US Justice Department. The Gun Violence Archive claims that there have actually been well over 300 mass shootings this year. And just to contrast this in Europe, you'll be hard-pressed to find more than three to five mass shootings across the entire continent here, outside of terrorism, of which there has thankfully been very little this year. The numbers are very, very low indeed. And the same goes for Australia, which is a good country to compare to America, because they introduced very tough laws after a famous mass shooting there. And guess what? Well, gun crime dropped dramatically almost overnight. Be wary if you go and read about this on the net because of the influence of the NRA and pro-gun lobbies in America. There's a lot of fake news out there. The fact is, tougher laws on guns, limiting access to guns, as any sane two-year-old would probably figure out, reduces gun crime dramatically. This introduction that I'm giving to you now is in many ways addressed to American listeners. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One of them is that I want to remind you that this podcast is a European project. Although we speak to Americans, perhaps more than any other nationality in terms of guests, we do operate within a European and to some degree global lens. The content of the podcast reflects this. And the content of this episode reflects this too. In these moments, it can be difficult to gain perspective. And a podcast episode like this one may seem irrelevant or superfluous or be dismissing real-world concerns. Especially if you are still recovering emotionally from the mass shootings or whatever terrible crap Trump and his blooming allies are enacting as I speak. My advice would be to come back to this at a later date if you are caught in this moment, when you have time to listen calmly and contextualise the content beyond the borders of America. And if that's really not an option for you, you might want to give this one a pass. For non-American listeners, carry on and prepare for an unusual adventure. This episode is a long one, though designed to make it worth your while. It is roughly divided into two sections, so if you do need a break, at about an hour, an important shift occurs. You'll know it because it's signalled by the opening of an old door to an unusual feast. That would definitely be a good point to pause. This episode, like the critical turn, is an experiment. Whether it works or not is likely to be highly subjective. It unfolds in Greece before ending up in a mysterious tavern in a secret location not far from where you live. 
and you may want to visit it sometime. Part of the aim of this episode is to encourage you to go and wet your lips at the bar and join in the hustle and bustle at the various tables. Alrighty, so just before finishing up this introduction, I should say something about music. Music features quite heavily in the episode you're about to listen to. It's integral to the production and is interwoven through the different parts of the presentation. So if you don't like music or you don't like some of what we've played here, don't worry too much, you'll find it serves a purpose. Artists this time round have been so generous to donate their music to the show that I need to give them a proper mention. So just be patient and... If you like what you hear, go and check out their work and support the artists. Buy an album, spend a few pennies on Bandcamp, or go and see them live if they pass through your area. The first group is really a a pairing, and I'm afraid I'm probably going to mess up the pronunciation. It's Zilorus or Xylorus White. It's a collaboration between a Greek singer and a lute or lauto player called George Zilleris, and an Australian drummer called Jim White. They produce very unique music, which has been a perfect backdrop to the first half of this podcast episode. The music comes from their latest album, Black Peak, combining Greek folk traditions, avant rock, free jazz, and other things too, really. They produce a unique, modern, traditional music. They're really good. And I recommend listening to them live, especially if you like ceremony and ritual, because their music really, it kind of is like being taken into a profound ritual. I saw them play here in Trieste this year, and I can tell you that pretty much the whole public was tripping with them without any illegal substances being shared. Emerald Dreams is a producer from Trieste, Italy, and a good friend of mine. You may want to check out his music if you like electronic stuff. You'll hear his music pop up in various sections of this podcast episode too. You can find out more about his stuff on SoundCloud. He's also on Bandcamp too. And you can buy or download his music from there. And it's often free. Support the artist, people. Support the artist. Another name I'm going to find very difficult to pronounce, but it's short, so I'm going to spell it is a rather lovely lady from Bristol. Shao-che or Kao-ke, it's C-H-A-O-U-C-H-E, is a very fine singer and uh, a beautiful voice, really beautiful. It really fits in well with various sections of the podcast episode. You can go and buy a nice vinyl, limited edition, from Bandcamp, if you like, and uh, listen to her music in the usual locations. And finally, a regular appearance on the podcast is my friend Ben Duboisson, or 100 Strong, Bristol-based producer, musician. Again, check him out on Bandcamp. Bandcamp. You'll hear some of his music playing along in the background, too.
Am I here? Is this where the oracle resides? Yes, it is. May I enter? Yes, you may. Oh, great oracle, please send my voice to Apollo, that he may show me the way forwards with this terrible burden of the political turn, so that my efforts may not be just another act of human folly cast into the internet. Which path must I take through this rocky, hazardous terrain? What must I speak to in order to avoid the dark and treacherous pitfalls on Twitter and on Facebook? Who should I address my discourse to when so many who practice listening from the heart when we speak of Dharma happily close down their ears when politics enters conversation? I beseech you, wise Apollo, guide me that I may do some small act of good with this humble podcast episode. Apollo speaks, little Apollo one, speaks, little and one. he has words and for you. Words for you. Hear, your fate, Hear your fate, O dweller in Italy dweller of the wide Italy, digital, the spaces. digital spaces. Firstly, Firstly you must transcend the small-minded parochialism small of your time. Of your time. Think, beyond the tribes, Think beyond the trials and tribulations of those who would have you do their bidding and fight their wars, for they are caught by the emotions and anger of our age. And though some may do good, may leave like Sisyphus and even adore their curse. Learn from the gods who live outside of human folly. But don't believe for a second that you could ever hold our all-knowing wisdom in your small little brain. Go meta. Don't lose your earthbound humanity. Go post. But do not forget history. Travel along the way of the non to the great feast and invite your listeners to go there too. For it is there that radical learning can take place. Nothing in excess. Be wary of those who bask in the certainties of righteousness and who profess their wisdom from on high as if they were gods. Dine with those who would have you know the world and see from the perspectives of other animals instead. Be like the great Socrates and his philosophical offspring. Do not be seduced by easy answers and the convictions of your peers. Question, 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 so that you may see the world beyond the confines of your geography. Little one, you must weave a story beyond the polarization of your age and find the cracks in between that they may be opened. An honor, my unruly brother at the feast. Dionysus, add music to your rumblings. Add music, for when one feasts with the mind, one must always feast with the ears. And if your listeners are wise, they will add wine and merriment and go about their day in ecstasy. Apollo speaks this, little one. Now go. Welcome to The Political Turn, 
and what might be the most dangerous episode this podcast has yet had. No, I'm only kidding. The hyperbole will be kept to a minimum today, and I think there's good reason for that to be done. I'm going to do my best not to preach, not to talk at you. Now, if I made a commitment to not preach at you or talk at you, then how should we manage this conversation both as speaker and listener? I would reiterate a point I made in a past episode, in which I stated that I don't really have opinions. Now, what I meant by that was something quite specific. The idea was that I don't have independent, isolated opinions that I possess and hold in my mind somewhere, which I then use to barter with reality. That's not to say that that might not be happening to some degree, but rather my view and experience of engaging with ideas is that these ideas exist around us. They are part of the the mental or intellectual ecology of our time. And just as we stated before with the Great Feast, this great concept of the many things of human culture all being present together and feasting together, the idea is that ideas are living phenomena that surround us and that we participate in. In fact, one of the other practice steps that can be very useful for avoiding the indulgences of our current political age is to start to see all ideas in this way. Therefore, I do not possess the truth. I do not possess the singular view or fact that captures the moment, defines it, ends discussion, concludes questions and so forth. Rather, my mind and my knowledge as something that's always in movement, in relationship and in a process of change, consists of ideas meeting and merging and affecting each other, changing each other. So the first obvious thing is that you should not be listening to this as if I were some expert speaking from on high. As I get older, I get to discover just how ignorant and limited I am, which is surprisingly refreshing. A great sense of relief comes about when a person no longer has to inhabit the role of he or she who knows. Knows what exactly? To what degree? Where is it possessed? These are the kinds of questions which come about. Why mention this? Well, first of all, because you should see this dialogue as a living dialogue which is in process, and it's a dialogue which you are participating in. And because the ideas, many of which I will be addressing, are the ideas of our age, they are ideas that are living in you too, or at least part of the ecology of the intellectual culture, political culture, and religious and spiritual culture that surrounds you. These are things you can touch, you can place in your hand, you can breathe into your mind and your gut and your heart. You can regurgitate, you can swallow, you can allow them to slowly digest, you can metabolize them quickly. They are part of the living fabric of our society and therefore, just by this mere fact, should be fascinating and should be worthy of your attention. The great theme that really begins the journey today is that of complexity. We might even say that addressing complexity is the great challenge of our age and may be the determinate factor of whether we survive this century as a species or not. 
Once you contend with complexity, once you accept that the nature of all social structures, whether political, economical, educational, or religious, are by their very nature complex, you can start to set aside some of the infantile, juvenile, simplistic desire for simple answers to complex problems. In fact, it's one of the quickest ways to get out of the bullshit which characterizes so much of what is labeled, although I think badly, as political discourse in our current age. We need a lot of caveats to have a discussion about some of the topics that will follow. We need to acknowledge that politics is a hot topic. It triggers reactions in so many of you. And those reactions prevent you from actually having a more sophisticated engagement with the topic at hand. An axiomatic principle then must be that of accepting complexity and therefore recognizing that simplistic perspectives or answers to complexity and specific complex problems simply will not do. They're not good enough. In fact, I would suggest that so much of our current political discourse is a great mirror to the poverty of thought and ideas that litter the landscape of our current age. The most interesting thinkers at present are doing primarily two kinds of thought. One is to think beyond the dichotomies of our age. The second is to find new relationships and connections between different kinds of thought and perspective. I've spoken about this a little bit before, in prior episodes, with guests and in the critical turn. Cross-cultural, cross-field, cross-genre thought, anything that basically mixes things together and finds new kinds of relationships. Now what's fascinating is the left-right divide. It's fascinating as an anthropological project. How many of you look at it that way? As a kind of curious, analytic, explorative engagement with a sort of alien phenomenon that is at hand, which you are experiencing yourself, which you're part of and you're not part of, both at once. How many of you are fed up with this bullshit of the left and the right, the far left, the far right? And we even have now the sanctimonious condemnation of the middle ground, Oh, those people in the middle, they're just unwilling to get in on the fight. Each of those kinds of thoughts and alignments and criticisms reveal ideological entrapment. The thing we've been talking about episode after episode, directly and indirectly, explicitly, implicitly, it's always there. And one of the second points we should make after repeating complexity is the nature of our age is just how similar religion and politics are. Now some of you are so clever and so well read, you will hear that and your mind will be triggered. It will. Off you go, dismissing, judging, conceptualizing, the poverty of thought returning. Stay curious, accept complexity, look for new kinds of relationships. These are some of the practices that we've been talking about for quite some time on this podcast. Nothing changes when you get to the political sphere. So what am I doing here? What am I suggesting? What am I encouraging, maybe, perhaps, although that might be too bold? 
I'm going to engage with some of those problematic topics which mark our age and which get a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of people riled up on Twitter. And it does seem to be Twitter, right? But it happens elsewhere too, on Facebook and Instagram. It happens in the newspapers. It happens on Fox News in America, on Sky News across the world. It happens on the BBC, in The Guardian in the UK, in The Telegraph. It happens in Australia. And yes, my discussion, or my presentation today, is more focused on the Western world, because that's what I know. This has been the most difficult episode for me to get done. The most. There are many reasons why that might be the case. Although I think I know which one it is. Could it be that it was because of all those warnings I got as soon as I mentioned I would do something on politics? No other topic I've broached has triggered such strong recommendations from friends and listeners alike. And yet, what struck me was not that that was an obvious reaction to get from people in this day and age, but really how sad that that's the state we should find ourselves in, where so many are terrified to speak about politics in the public sphere. Yes, I know there are lots of people doing it, and they are often the most vocal and outrageous and most uninteresting of the lot. Sure, they're entertaining in a kind of reality TV way. Well, hopefully, at least some of you are getting disinterested in all of the outrage on the left and the right. But back to those people, why would they feel compelled to try and compel me not to talk about politics? There's a thought worth exploring, beyond easy answers. And that's another axiomatic principle I'd like to introduce at this point. The second one is that engaging with politics is itself a practice, and that the same principles that concern engaging with the idea of practice more generally, as explored in the first critical term, apply equally here. Dichotomies are useful starting points for exploration, but they are insufficient for thinking beyond the current moment. You have to go more sophisticated. You have to bring in other kinds of thought. You have to be curious about the phenomena of our age. And being curious is an attitude as much as anything. It's an openness to discovering something new, something you didn't know, something you haven't already taken on as a conclusion, as a belief, as an assumption, as a final answer. Because of this complexity, and because this is a practice, it has been hard to get this thing off the ground. What choices do I make? Which angle do I choose? How do I come at this? I've therefore decided to record this in various phases. It will all come to you as a stream of a single podcast episode, but in truth it will have been recorded in stages. That's not how I normally do these. I normally do everything in one go, then I edit afterwards. But it's the only way to tackle such a complex topic. Since we are talking about politics within the context of a Buddhist-themed podcast, this second principle or axiom of engagement with politics being a practice means that this podcast episode itself should be taken as a practice, both for me as the speaker and you as the listener. Now, of course, you're an adult. You can do what you want, and please do. But if you like the suggestion... It might be this. 
take this as a partially phenomenological practice. Whatever you hear that triggers a reaction, allow the reaction to emerge, to express itself, and then let it go. Do the same with opinions, beliefs. If you have physical, emotional reactions, enjoy them for whatever they are, pleasant or unpleasant, neutral, well, they're unlikely to be that. <laughs> I'm talking about politics. Observe them, allow them to be, and let them go. Curiosity, which I just talked about as an attitude, is also a relational practice. It's not just something you adopt and then it's done. It can also be understood as a form of inquiry, of searching experience for the unfamiliar, for the new, for the possibility of anything bringing you into a new kind of space. This is actually a pretty useful practice to engage in, the practice of curiosity, in a world in which opinions are thrown around like weapons constantly. This is probably Twitter's fault. They're the ones that demanded that we express complex ideas in simplistic phrases consisting of very few characters. And even after they extended the thing and allowed for the inclusion of pictures, etc., perhaps it was already too late. People were invited to express everything in affirmations, in statements of fact and truth. And it's still happening now. And yet, isn't it weird that the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know and how difficult to sustain those strong opinions and beliefs are. And yet we live in an age in which certainty is the currency that sells well on Twitter. Is it any surprise that we end up with the political class we have, where arrogance, bluster, cocksuredness are the currency of the political age? How often is, have nuanced sophisticated arguments won over the mob. And yes, we are the mob. Not very often. Not very often at all. Here's the next axiomatic principle. We are mammals, animals. Much of our political culture is the continued attempt to raise ourselves up off of the muddy ground upon which our animal selves are birthed and crawl and walk and stumble and fall. So much of political and religious and spiritual culture is based in the axiomatic principle of transcendence. Yes, it's that big T word again, which gets a bashing each time I do one of these episodes. I adore transcendence in many ways, don't get me wrong but it does so much damage to us when we fail to recognize its implicit role in so much of our discourse and our human frivolity. How much of our political and religious discourse is based in a form of snobbery towards our animal selves, our instinctual selves, our instincts of self-preservation, our desire to fuck and mate and reproduce and protect ourselves and our kin and our cubs. No, I'm not calling for us to return to some primeval or some Rousseauian animal, simplistic, pure, aligned with nature state. I'm merely saying that much of our political culture 
is based in the fantasy that we can transcend our animal, physical selves. Much of it is based on ignoring, dominating, explaining away our baser instincts and desires. And therefore much of it is a form of delusion. Much of it is a form of suppression. And much of it is fundamentally a form, an expression of ignorance. No matter how noble it may be, no matter how strong the desire and aims, when it excludes this fundamental part of our being in this world, it can't help but be fundamentally dysfunctional. Before we start talking about politics and Buddhism, we need to get something out of the way, and it's important. Here's a question for you to get us going. True or false? Everything is political. Well, what do you think? Do you agree with this statement? Have you heard it used? I'm going to guess that you have. It's one of those fashionable mottos that gets thrown around, discarded in discourse, like a cigarette butt dropped on the floor. It's polluting because the statement in itself is highly political. And like so many phrases, mottos, trite one-liners, it's handled in a way that assumes much and yet knows very little. It might be better to change the phrase so that we can do something useful with it. How about this one instead? Everything can be politicised. Because obviously, not everything is political. Or, if it is, we have to put it alongside, at the Great Feast, many other claims and statements. Everything's philosophical. Everything's biological. Everything is spiritual. Everything is cultural. Everything is economical. So which one is it? And if it's all of them, don't we just end up where we were before? Accepting complexity? That societies, that human being are interwoven with all kinds of complex phenomena. So yes, the statement everything is political is bollocks, unless it's understood to be a way of thinking about the world or as a departure point, which is not factually true or ultimately real or a great mirror to the world around us, finally capturing truth with a capital T. You can politicise as much as you want and you can depoliticise. And surely what's interesting is not whether that is totally, ultimately, objectively true or false, but that we become aware of what we're doing, not doing, and the processes that are at play. If we take politics as a practice in line with much of what we've spoken about on this podcast, then it is yet another strand which we can use to inform our sense of practice and that would include, as always, meditation, working on your heart, dealing with embodied or disembodied consciousness. It comes down to right practice, wrong practice, ethics, and all the rest. But let's not be so lame as to assume that everything is politics, and that's the only game in town. With that in mind, what needs to be said about politics and contemporary Buddhism. One fundamental question that should always be in play in the practicing life 
is what will you see and what won't you see. Our view of the world, our knowledge is always partial and it is mostly selective. But to what degree do we consciously select? Select out, select in, choose to see and choose not to see. Well, those are very interesting lines of inquiry to explore. And politics certainly comes into play pretty quickly when you do that, especially if you are somebody who is considered to be very spiritual or religious. The question then becomes, how is politics at play within a given context? What meaning does it have? And to what degree should you look at it, see it and engage with it? There are many different ways of coming at those questions I've just posed. Some will be more attractive to you than others. The context I give to this would be that of democracy, or of democracy specifically as a duty, as a responsibility. I've mentioned an Italian intellectual on this podcast once or twice before. His name is Corrado Augas. He's alive, he's a journalist. He hosts a long-running TV program at lunchtime in which he interviews authors, journalists, politicians, priests, people from all across Italian society. And it's probably one of the very few remaining intellectually stimulating and culture-rich programs on Italian TV which has taken an incredible dive of late, thanks to Berlusconi. That detail might not interest you, but I met Corrado and got him to sign a book and had a conversation with him. And one of the statements I love from him is that democracy is fatiguing. It's fatiguing, it's tiring. It requires effort and work. Now, is there any surprise that so few people will engage with politics, really? When it is fatiguing, requires effort and our time and energy, when most of us don't have much left after work and family. In that context, the spiritual, the religious, becomes not a means for coming to know the world more fully, more accurately, for revealing the world, but a refuge from it. Anybody looking at the last century of Buddhism in the West with a bit of a critical view will note that so much of it has really played the role of refuge from reality. And it's interesting how strongly that contrasts with many claims made by Buddhist teachers. It will help you, it will introduce you, it will give you direct access to the world, to reality, to truth, to the nature of existence. And yet, it doesn't really do that, does it? Or are you still convinced that it can? If you are, you should probably go back and listen to one of the prior episodes. Go on, do it. It's really worthwhile. Now, I'm happy to accept that certain kinds of mental training, both in terms of working with consciousness or awareness or perception can be combined with various practices of thought, developing critical thinking skills, developing the ability to analyze, reflect, question, and engage in a dialogical relationship with texts and practices and ideas themselves. Altogether, those things certainly can bring you into a more reality-based relationship with the world with yourself, with others, with ideas that are floating around, and with the political sphere. There are certainly things that are true and false, or truer and falser, 
And although we have a, an ongoing, ambiguous and problematic relationship with ideas of truth and facts, they do exist in spite of our silliness, in spite of our species-centric arrogance. What then is taking place in a Dharma hall, in a meditation hall, in a meditation group, in a given Buddhist tradition and its practices? What purpose does it serve? What purpose should it serve, if any? We may all have opinions on such things, or we may never have given them much thought. But to assume that the space of a religious community can somehow be apolitical is a mistaken one. As some people have recognised, to choose to disengage from the wider world is itself a political act. From my perspective, what matters is not whether people use Buddhism or Buddhist groups or meditation spaces to disinhabit the social-political spheres that surround us. That's not necessarily a bad thing at all once you think about it. Why shouldn't some people use meditation, breathing techniques more generally, or an alternative community like a Buddhist group as a means for disengaging from all of the crap that surrounds us, all of the bollocks in the news and all of the really annoying political discourse that's going on. That sounds like a pretty intelligent thing to do a lot of the time. I think the question that's important is just being honest about it all. Just as we should be honest about whether we are getting in touch with reality, some true self, whether we are really practicing Buddhism as some imagined original founding figure might have imagined it. We need to be honest about what's actually taking place. How much of the discourse that we use to justify what we do and don't do is supported by the Buddhist community? How much of it is about giving each other permission to disengage or to choose to ignore? Those are the sorts of practice questions that I think contemporary Western Buddhist communities are really kind of responsible for engaging with. Now, of course, there is some change taking place in some Buddhist communities. There is a challenge to traditional hierarchical roles, although that's been going on for quite some time already. There is also a challenge to the role of gender, males dominating roles of power and so forth. And of course, there are the ongoing issues of abuse, we get to mention Sogyao yet again in this regard. The NKT also has its own scandals, as do many other Buddhist groups. But of course, the thing that always comes to my mind when I see these things happening is that these really have very little to do with Buddhism and everything to do with what's acceptable and unacceptable in the wider social context. In being so, they highlight the inclusive, exclusive nature of groups more generally and how religious groups tend to try to create special circumstances for themselves. They try to create, in a sense, collective forms of refuge from the inadequacies of wider society. Again, there is sanity in such practices much of the time, but there is also insanity, and that is a very interesting line of tension that groups run. If a democracy demands of us that we be responsible, at least to engaging in the democratic process, then we must, in a sense, be better informed 
about what it means to be a responsible person. This applies to being in a Buddhist group too. When there are scandals, who has the responsibility to speak up, to act out, to denounce, to report? We see this going on still in Catholic communities, but it's true worldwide. One of the big problems with spiritual and religious groups is they hold themselves to be special, unique, different, diverse, and to be oceans of refuge from all that messy human stuff. Of course, this is an ideal I'm talking about. Of course, it's not absolutely true. It's an ideal which inhabits, though, the thinking space, the feeling space, and the social space of any group, Buddhist or otherwise. But the question becomes again, what duty, responsibility does each member of the group have? What is the role of democracy within those groups? Should it have a role? Is there something gained or lost by destabilizing and upsetting traditional power structures, traditional group dynamics? We'd be kidding ourselves if this wasn't a necessary question to be posed within Buddhist groups in the West. But we'd also be kidding ourselves if we believed that it can only get better if we bought into that wonderful myth of progress, that democratizing groups will somehow magically improve them, or that we won't lose something incredibly important on the way. In fact, again, sorry to keep doing this, but we're back to much wider questions, which go beyond Buddhism and go beyond politics, that are part and parcel of the fabric of social organization, of meaning-making within groups, and the organization, self-organization, structural organization of groups of men and women and others seeking to figure out how to coexist. A quick note on the real world and... I do some virtue signaling. Woe is Western democracy indeed. At the time of putting this together, the political scene in the Anglo-American world has heated up quite dramatically. It's also a challenging period for Europe as a whole. And one wonders what Russia, China and India are making of all this. Are they silent cheerleaders egging on the whole process and seeing an opportunity? Or worrying deeply whether they will have stable economic partners in the near future? Donny Trump has continued to prove himself a right royal cunt, which I guess was to be expected. And Boris Johnson, one of our most narcissistic and incompetent UK career politicians, has just become Prime Minister. Damn. At the same time, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the UK Labour Party, is struggling to garner sufficient support from the general public. And I'm afraid that, uh, according to many experts, Trump does seem likely to win the next election. In Italy too, Salvini is going from strength to strength, despite attempts from most other political parties to discredit him. It's not looking good, folks, is it? It's not looking good. Another way of looking at it is to say what fascinating times we live in. And I guess the truth is somewhere between the two. Now, unfortunately, the left is doing what it does so well across the Western world, which is failing to learn from its tactical mistakes. 
and fragmenting way too often into factions, whilst losing its grip on the much-needed middle ground. Now, whatever I say in the podcast episode, I will certainly not say enough to avoid certain misunderstandings, and I accept that. And I assume that the last thing I just said will create some misunderstanding. If you're patient and you wish to practice tolerance throughout, as I do my best to do the same, maybe you'll find that sometimes, later on, I'll actually respond to some of your concerns. And if I don't, there's always the opportunity to address a question or to just call me names. I'm kind of okay with both. So here goes the next section, in which I talk about myself a little bit, but not too much, so don't get worried or excited, whichever one it might be. Now, I will be clear here, I am a big fan of democracy, though I do believe it requires serious and ongoing interrogation, and that it fails as much as it succeeds in ways that are rarely discussed in public. We are at once sure of what democracy means, right? Yet, generally, incapable of understanding its failures to manifest its guarantees. Our attempts at democracy are far more unstable than most of us would like to admit. And I think this is one reason for the attractiveness of conservative thought amongst older voters. I am, though, hopefully not too naive myself about the failings and limitations of democracy, even as I champion it. And partly that's because I see no realistic alternative at this time. I actually see genuine democracy as the only political force that can really keep tyranny at bay and contain the excesses of human stupidity. Even though one of our guests will argue that if you look at it with an objective view you'll actually find that most dictators were actually voted into power. So I guess that contradicts what I've just said. I would also say that really, if you are one of those who would like to bring the whole system down, I think that really you should probably stop listening to this podcast right now and go and study history very thoroughly. Give some serious thought to the kinds of suffering your preferred utopian or dystopian fantasy would release onto the world. Considering this is a Buddhist-themed podcast, I just thought it was worth saying that. Listen, I very much want the left to defeat the Conservatives in the UK. I want the left to defeat Salvini in Italy. I want the left to defeat Trump in the States. I am a realist at the end of the day, and when I say that, I guess I have to qualify it a bit. I don't mean as part of some philosophical tradition, but I mean in the sense that I'm always trying to look and be as objective as possible in interpreting what's going on. That doesn't mean I won't commit to things, but more in the sense that I see politics as a game of pragmatic moves in a shifting chess game of public concerns, and I'm worried that the left is simply unwilling to play the game well enough to win. Part of the issue, of course, is its unwillingness to compromise and embrace those it sees as the enemy. And I'm afraid many of us, if we're honest, uh, have to admit that the left in the UK and the US has tended to throw in too many of those who do not wish to play identity politics or agree with its high-minded moralising into the same categories it uses, often rightly, of course, to label Trump and his enablers and other right-wing populists or similar. The left certainly may be morally right, and certainly in the abstract sense, that's generally the case. But if it's not playing to win, 
at the chess game of contemporary modern politics, then I'm afraid that democratic elections are likely to leave them behind again in the UK, US and Italy in the coming years. And those are really, and I say this unashamedly, the three countries I care most about. It's where I live, it's where I have lived and it's where I have many relatives and many friends. So one reason for critiquing the left is this concern. And there are many people like me who have always been on the left who have raised certain complaints and often get ostracized or labeled as a consequence. But if you take this practical lens just for a minute, and if we all agree that the long-term project surely has to win the election in order to be able to enact policies that respond more effectively to your other concerns, then there has to be a shift in the tactics on the left. It has to evolve, in a sense. And the left, of course, what is it? I mean, it's a very big name for very divergent groups and very divergent individuals. But whatever the left does or doesn't do politically as political parties, fighting elections against the conservatives or the right or the middle right or the far right, unless it captures more of the middle ground and responds unpatronizingly to wider concerns about immigration, cultural change, globalization, the economic collapse for the white working class and, as a consequence, increasingly the middle class, and the environment, and not just as a token gesture, I think it really is unlikely to win in those three countries. If this is an incorrect evaluation, don't get me wrong, I will be very, very happy indeed. Within this major moment of disruption and disappointment politically, many listeners will no doubt be screaming, crying, panicking, raging, and putting on their boots ready to march on Washington or London or Rome. And I say, good on you. Go out there and do something. Participate. Protest. Push back against the tide of populism as best you can. Fight for some cause you believe in. But please... Don't lose your common and practical sense in the process. And don't lose your ability to think critically about what you're doing and what you think you're doing. Not necessarily the same thing at all. Because these volatile times often lead to easy labels being thrown about, I shall take a moment to engage the secret police, the Maoist political shame squads, the fanatical radicals, the die-hard communists... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know, I know. Those fringe elements are the very few, but goddammit, they can be vocal, right? And playfulness aside, I shall now virtue signal. This is not the first time for me. I've done it before, although I find it painfully boring. And I think it should be said as a warning that this may cause some cognitive dissonance for some of you. In fact, I can only guess from the tone of some comments I've received at various locations that some of you are kind of expecting me to out myself today as an alt-right conservative something or other. Well, sorry to tell you, but anyone that knows me personally would find that quite hilarious. Now, just remember as well that I am operating in Europe. So, although I'm a Brit, and although I have lots of relatives and friends in America, some of the easy labels you might normally use on people in the States won't fit so well here. And really, my shoulders are not wide enough to host them all anyway. And I should add that most of Italy has never heard of much of the language used in the American culture wars, or even of the war itself. They'd be completely and utterly confused, and that includes many if not most folks, on the left. Context is important, right? 
Virtue Signal One. I, Matthew Joseph O'Connell, wholeheartedly support the engagement with new theories and political practices. And that includes things I also very much enjoy critiquing. The list is long. It can include identity politics, intersectionality, gender theory, race theory, white theory. Keep going with your list. It's all great. And I mean it. I find it all very, very interesting. Of course, part of my concern is that there is a lack of critical engagement from those who practice these theories and the whole range, really, of what often ends up being thrown into the basket of far-left politics. Now, of course, what we call the thing is important. And as we spoke about on this podcast when talking about modernism, post-structuralism, post-modernism, and the rest, there are two things to say. Firstly, the names become labels for divergent phenomena, which are owned, appropriated, and utilized by divergent groups. And that often the arguments about authenticity cover up underlying issues which should be brought to the fore. So I am fascinated by these emerging fields, and I see them as potentially great material for thinking alongside other systems of thought and practice. And as you'll hear in a bit, my biggest concern is not really whether they're right or wrong, should be rejected, protected, defended, asserted, or be obligatory as educational forms. Actually, all of that's really worth a great conversation. My biggest concern, though, is really their role in producing ideologically captured subjects in keeping with the big themes that run through this podcast as a whole. It's worth remembering, going back to a point I raised earlier, that these are, all of them, after all, often highly sophisticated approaches to analysing very, very complex phenomena. And when they're used as battering rams in the public square they can start to appear as parodies of themselves. My concern then, and perhaps even my complaint, is that this ultimately diminishes their power to help the wider population think critically about major concerns and issues. When these theories descend into the dirty alleyways of politics, they get muddied very quickly, pretty much like everything else. And they too often start to morph and change into bastardised versions of themselves. And I think this explains why there is often so much disconnect between the claims of proponents and those hostile towards these practices and theories. For sure, theory can be very powerful. But once it accumulates an excess of power or symbolic meaning across different groups, it becomes difficult to control. And if you're a strong proponent of any of these theories and practices, it may be hard for you to accept that they have all become many things to many people, and your authority or definition may no longer capture the whole beast. In fact, it's pretty much guaranteed, right? If you are committed to a solely positive or negative view of, well, identity politics or free speech or whatever hot topic we might name, then I think you're probably too limited in your reading of the complexity of our moment. Virtue signaling too. I, Matthew Joseph. All right, I'll give that up, shall I? You know who's speaking here. I very much support and engage in political activity myself. Yeah, you happy now? Or is this just another reiteration of that kind of thing that happens when people say, 
I'm not a racist, I have black friends. And everybody nods knowingly, yeah bro, you're a racist. Or how about, I'm not homophobic, I had a gay friend at uni. Yeah, he's a homophobe. Well look, in my case you decide, I can't do much about whatever you feel you are able to judge with and entertain your curiosity as you see fit. I'm quite happy to lay my cards on the table here, and that's that. Now, I actually see political activity as a social worldly practice, right? And a necessary one in any healthy, functioning democracy. But there is also the wider practice that exists when Salvini has eventually been fired and Johnson has eventually been voted out of office for expressing one lie too many. There is the longer practice that exists before and during and after the likes of would-be tyrants like Erdogan and Trump have come and gone. And this is what I am mainly speaking to in the next section. That doesn't mean it's not practical, but it does mean that it's kind of, well, above much of our current political climate, but woven through it. Now, this approach acknowledges that you must at times do something real out in the world. You really must. In fact, I believe it's your democratic duty to do so. And I argue again and again with students, both at university and even adults in the companies I teach in, that it's really their basic duty and an obligation. This approach also, though, acknowledges that our capacity to act is always helped or hindered by our strong or weak engagement with the history of ideas and the great thinkers of our time. In fact, one question that should echo throughout our lives is, on what knowledge do I base my decisions, my commitments, my beliefs and practices? Because it does turn out that very much what we are doing much of the time is repeating history. So perhaps we should find out what happened when others before us acted the way we currently do. Perhaps we should find out what happens when large numbers refuse to engage in the process of democracy. What happens when a group forces their opinions onto others with no wiggle room for dissent? What happens when one group sides with a would-be despot to protect their own interests at any cost? And yes, that last one is definitely aimed at you, American evangelicals. What's more, in the ecology of a human life, politics intertwines with our overall thrust of adult human development. Are you still learning about politics? It's history and is present? Well, most folks don't bother even starting, do they? And there's an interesting discussion about who should vote or what we should know before we do so. Politics is, after all, a maturing practice, both for individuals and for governments and political parties. And this is so true in the age we live in, in which complexity is becoming so obvious and in which we are increasingly seeing how myriad and diverse the desires and needs are of populations. The democratic process itself is having to evolve, and there's no guarantee it will survive this century, of course. And political parties, politicians, journalists, think tanks, and academics studying politics are all really called to embrace the current struggle which all countries really are facing in a globalised culture in a globalised world and one in which we're increasingly coming to terms with just how irrational we all are. The ideal of democracy demands much of us and when it works and when enough of us choose well and are 
hopefully well informed in doing so, it is of course an incredible vehicle for bringing about massive social change for the betterment of the majority, with real world reduction in suffering and ignorance. Hey you Buddhists, please remember that. Like all complex human behavior, politics is an art as much as it is a challenge, and it's good for us all to remember that most of us are all beginning artists at best. Virtue Signal 3. I vote, and I do so very carefully. I engage in protests here in Italy against bad policies, the refusal of the government to act on climate change, against organised crime, and locally for justice, for a variety of reasons, really. And I think the most recent one was for the protection of a local nature reserve. I engage my own students in debates on democracy as I teach them critical thinking, and one of the things I love doing is discussing the moral obligation to vote and participate in the democratic process. I donate money to Amnesty International every year, and I support Extinction Rebellion too. I even take my son on LGBT marches. I do all of this because I see it as our civic duty to engage politically and was raised this way. Participating in the poll tax demonstrations in the 90s when I was very young indeed, as well as anti-racism and anti-war protests in London and Bristol, to name a couple. I went to Noam Chomsky's talk here in Trieste just a few years back, although I have to tell you, it was bloody boring. And I attend local political meetings on occasion too, to keep myself informed. I voted against Brexit, I voted in the European elections for the Greens, and so on, and so on. <laughs> I'm sorry, I do hate having to speak about myself, and that's pretty much the end of it. In fact, I'm only saying all of this because some of you will not even consider what follows without knowing that for me, political engagement and practice is both hands-on and mind-on. I'm not in the habit of advertising this on social media, but there it is in case you were wondering, in case you need to hear this, in case you need some confirmation of something. Now, of course, it won't be enough for some of you, but that's not my concern. We're all strugglers when it comes to practice, and I make no claims to be otherwise. Now that's more or less out the way, let's go and eat. The Great Feast Beckons. As we head to the great political feast, one question that might come to mind is, who will be there? Who gets an invite? But before we get to that, there are a couple of things to say as we make our way down towards the dining hall. Like all of the great themes that unite the different sections of guests at the great feast, the banquet table for the political debates and discussions that we might partake in is a lively one, and it's a, really a table where any of us could spend several lifetimes. So we obviously have to accept that we're never going to understand it all. But the striving is always good practice, and if we challenge our preconceptions and dive right in, we will certainly come out changed after we've finished our meal. One of the big intellectual challenges amongst all the activity that defines our current political landscape including the culture wars, the left-right split, 
out this, out that, far this and far that, is a challenge to renew our perspectives doggedly, to purify our tendency to gravitate towards fixed positions and therefore end up as ideologically captured subjects. Whatever our intentions might be, however noble our aims, and some of you would do well to recognise that there's plenty of that on both sides of the political spectrum, the renewal of perspectives, the renewal of ideas is needed and often. This is in many ways the uber practice that takes us to the great feast. And it is a challenge that more of us would do well to take up and carry forwards. For if undertaken effectively, it is a practice that will constantly surprise you. As with our critique of Buddhism and spirituality more broadly, there are basic principles and considerations that can help us at the feast. You might consider some of these the basic etiquette or table manners. These will allow us to avoid being frowned upon unnecessarily. One essential one here that should help keep us honest as well is to keep in mind that political positions are never fully realised. They're never truly complete and there are therefore ideas in motion, in active tension with the wider world. Communists, neoliberals, libertarians, social democrats, many of whom you will find at the table, have all been known to excuse away their imperfect antecedents by claiming they had simply not been fully realised, and that if they had been, the utopian fantasy they covet would finally be actualised. Well, sorry, folks, but the fact is that imperfect beings in an imperfect world will never have their fully actualized perfect utopia. Or dystopia, if that's your preferred meal. The practical application of political ideology rarely resembles any kind of truly faithful reproduction. And political ideas and practices are always struggling against the reality of circumstances and the live demands of the day. Whether democracy or fascism, human rights, the rule of law, free speech... Immigration controls, these are always flawed human practice in action and are rarely kept in line with their progenitor's hopes. And perhaps this is one reason why politics is so disappointing for so many. Democracy again, identity politics, feminism, free markets, all these waves and forces within contemporary politics rarely only do what their proponents would wish them to either. There are always complex, unforeseen consequences. And proponents of theories and policies rarely seem to ask themselves, how will my utopian dream actually deal with this messy and incompliant world? And what unforeseen consequences have or will result from my dreams? The recognition that political ideals are never fully realized or fully realizable can be fuel for hope or despair greater tolerance or never-ending frustration, joy or depression. One way I find this observation useful is as a constant reminder that our all-too-human desires will forever be frustrated by a world far greater and more complex than our pitiful visions can encompass. Swapping spirituality or religion 
and that sentence still works. This observation also helps me to temper my own temptations to assert the truth of certain political positions I covet and to get carried away with ideals I wish to see realized. This doesn't prevent me from acting, however, but rather allows me to be creative in how I respond to pressing issues and long-term commitments without getting caught in despair, arrogant frustration or indifference. It also helps in the disenchantment process with heroes and saviors, the sort of thing we've seen to be rife and ongoing in the world of Buddhism. But of course it applies to political leaders too, politicians and intellectuals who stand on either side of the political spectrum. And of course we shouldn't kid ourselves, there's loss there as well. It can be terrible to lose one's desires for a noble saviour to come and fix all these problems we see around us. But there's also an opportunity to mature and for some of you perhaps leave behind the long-lost father or mother you've been searching for or in Jeremy Corbyn's case, dour uncle. After seeing so many political and environmental activists burn out during my youth, I can tell you that a sane relationship with the madness of politics is essential, especially if you're in it for the long run. One practice for me involves softening my assertions, relaxing my urge to grasp at positions of outrage, and trying to see the whole picture as much as I am able, and recommit, recommit. Recommit to what is real and actual, and act from there. And yes, that real is always contextual. But how much of our energy is actually dissipated through expressing anger and frustration on Twitter or on Facebook or moaning down the pub to friends about this or that? I'm a great believer that we must all be pragmatists in the appropriate moment. And I don't mean in the high-sounding philosophical sense, but I mean that if you're really, really angry about something, it's better to take that energy and focus it towards what you're angry at and do what you actually can in the real-world circumstances in which you find yourself. Taking your frustration with Boris Johnson could be transformed into what? Going to a protest, dedicating time to informing yourself better about political procedures and supporting good initiatives. It could be dedicated to, well, giving some money to the opposition, which would most likely be the Labour Party or maybe even going and joining the local chapter of the Labour Party, or another political group that you feel might stand up against the dysfunction and poor policies of the Conservatives. The same goes for the environment. It can be tempting to become depressed and very, very angry about the disaster we see unfolding around us. But again, if we were to say that all of that was really an expression of limited time and energy, which we all have, it seems pretty obvious that it would be wiser to focus it into something that might shift our species and whether that means you and a friend, your city or your country or the world in one direction rather than another might be worth giving it a go, right? And we can recommit to that again and again. And I actually think that Buddhism has a role in all this because it reminds us that suffering is key in understanding why we humans do what we do, right? People vote differently to me and you, see the world differently, believe in certain actions, very often because they are suffering. 
and because they are victims themselves to certain forms of ignorance, as we all are. To recognise this is not to dismiss or give up righteous anger when appropriate, but is rather that thing that seems to be going out of fashion at present, which is to connect with the humanity in the great other and become aware of how our own choices and commitments may sometimes be no wiser than theirs and how easily we can end up being the more ignorant ones. Now, I actually consider this an anti-tribal practice, so it may not suit all of you, but I actually find it essential in our polarised and polarising unthinking times. And this might be part of really the question of how instead of what when engaging politically as a practice. And it is from this recognition that we move into the next phase of this political turn. So, madam, may I take your coat? Sir, can I take your jacket right this way? Right this way. As you take your seat at the great feast, feel free to participate by tucking into the great banquet on offer. Don't be afraid to add a little critical salt and pepper to the leg of lamb or some imaginative mustard to the veggie casserole. Viewpoint diversity is not only a buzz phrase for nefarious outright villains, you know. Feel free to see as you will see and focus in on what matters to you more as we proceed. Oh, and don't forget, be wary of your blind spots. We all have them. As we head into the great political feast, we can expect many unexpected guests. And by that, I mean people we may not wish to dine with, as well as riotous exchanges as debates get very heated indeed, and often very quickly. Before talk of no platforming was uttered in the hallowed walls of academia, the great feast was underway, and it will continue long after notions of free speech have warped and shifted and come and gone. At the great feast, everyone is there, and will be, for as long as they are remembered, and as long as some evidence of their work remains in this world. And to all those whose great works were lost to time and that have been forgotten, we salute you. And as new guests turn up constantly to wrestle with ideas, things can only really get messier and continue to disrupt our ideals and assumptions in ever more creative ways. In fact, at the Great Feast, it is very difficult to hold on to your unchallenged political commitments. But feel free to try if you are so sure they do need defending. Though you may be surprised to discover that many of them can stand on their own two feet if allowed just a little bit more wiggle room and space to breathe. They too, though, will be changed by a rugged engagement with other ideas on offer. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why ideologues so hate to mix ideational company. Please note that at the Great Feast we are never at war. Knowledge is not killed off. Ideas are not eradicated from memory. There is instead the hard work of debate, exchange and an ongoing commitment to learn from each other, to refine, to disrupt, to strive to know the world more fully in its imminent, messy human glory and disaster. This is the practice at hand. And yes, it can exist apart from the world as a wonderful form of mental masturbation 
That definitely happens, but it can also be a profoundly important critical practice that may contribute to saving our mad species from its worst instincts. I guess it's up to us to find out. I will take the liberty of repeating a point from before. Can you give yourself permission to be surprised and perhaps even add an additional perspective to enrich your overall vision of the world rather than merely defend existing positions? This is also a practice, and isn't it great? No, you don't have to give up your hard-earned views or even your current political commitments. Just add in other views. Get them mixing and matching, dialoguing with each other as you operate from a position of curiosity. If you're open-minded, you can go further. Have an orgy take place as multiple ideas play off of each other's strengths and challenge each other's weaknesses. Too much for you? Well, have them come and drink tea around the table instead and at least acknowledge each other's existence. You've got to start somewhere, right? As we head out towards uncomfortable and controversial topics, it would be better to consider me a humble waiter assisting diners at the banquet rather than occupying that very heavy role of the one who knows. In fact, please let me get back to my meagre work. Our guests are already famished and new guests keep arriving. One question that would be pertinent to ask is who will you refuse to sit next to? Anne Rand, perhaps, the godmother to modern-day libertarians. Or Karl Marx, the spectre that haunts all of us on the left. Or John Stuart Mill, maybe, the man who reminds us of uncomfortable truths in an age of creeping conformity. Or how about the devilish Friedrich Hayek, one of the great architects of neoliberalism. If you're a practitioner of identity politics, the table will no doubt appear as a hostile place. And you might not be comfortable with such a mix of company. You may feel driven to pull your allies close around you and feel shock at being asked to engage with your preferred other. This is a shame, for there is a place for activism and boundaries and line drawing and there is another kind of place for learning about what appears to us as the darkest instincts in man. It is actually possible to be fascinated by the evils of our fellow humans without being contaminated or motivated to reenact that same evil. This is such an easy and simple observation, yet the polarized age has convinced enough of you otherwise. Even the most hated of diners, whether Mao Zedong or Dick Cheney, have something of interest to share, if only to help us understand how far the human mind can go in pushing political ideas to extremes with little concern or imagination to envision their real-world consequences. And as every pop psychologist knows, paying attention to those you hate most can be the most illuminating of practices. So can you be and remain curious about those unwanted guests? This is a practice too, of course, and one that certain traditions of Buddhism would encourage you to undertake.
Is there really such a big difference between going to a graveyard and meditating on the disgusting, repulsive corpse that lay there in front of your eyes as the vultures pick apart flesh and organs away from bone, and coming to terms with the disgust we feel at men and women who have conjured up ideas that we find utterly repulsive. Perhaps that's worth thinking about just for a moment. So in mentioning Buddhism, will we find many Buddhists at this political table? Well, for sure, some. The Indian Buddhist emperor Ashoka will be there. Perhaps Gautama too. But there are living folks as well. Thich Nhat Hanh has to be there with his engaged Buddhism, as is Claire Brown, an American professor who wrote a book on Buddhist economics back in 2007, calling for a political and economic model grounded in equality, sustainability and right living. Jeffrey Sachs seemed to like it, and it was inspired in part by E.F. Schumacher, quite the radical thinker himself. Of course, he's there too. Hey, hi Ernst. Though, if we were to be honest, it is difficult to imagine Buddhist ideas gaining real ground in modern-day politics in the West beyond some passing consideration of gross domestic happiness as a token gesture to the masses, perhaps facilitated by mindfulness. Or you might be thinking of engaged Buddhism, which in the West at least has had minimal impact, and I'm afraid to say often features as part of the wider Western middle-class engagement with Buddhism as a sort of lifestyle fetish. That's not to say that Buddhism doesn't have material that might be useful to a newly revived vision of an alternative to the current political and economic order, but rather that it will likely only operate as a fetish in today's political climate as it currently stands. I mean, can you imagine mainstream economic and political institutes reflecting on compassion and the cycle of rebirth when considering 21st century economic or political policies? Well, I guess anything is possible, but not so likely. Incidentally, Claire Brown will be a guest soon on the podcast, so we can always ask her. In the meantime, some of you may claim that it's just what we need, and how dare you play down the power of Buddhist thought? To which I would reply, I'm not doing that. I'm merely stating we should be honest. If you are one of those that presupposes Buddhism is right and true, then it's natural for you to believe that it will have much to offer our political and economic landscape. But if that's your view, you will not get very far at the feast, but merely be dismissed as yet another arrogant pretender to the timeless game of declaring and claiming to be a possessor of ultimate truth. If Buddhist ideas are brought into a lively discussion with a prominent social democrat or conservative thinker, they may get some sympathy, they may not. But will these ideas hold up to scrutiny? And how will they look when turned into real-world policies that must be voted for or against? The majority of our political thinkers would find the thought of Thich Nhat Hanh and others very pretty, no doubt, but also naive and a long way from the pragmatic realities of real politique. Of course, just to keep the rules clear, we'll only find out all of this by testing ideas out in rich exchange with multiple interlocutors. 
and not by defending a given position or assuming it's right from the get-go. This is a practice that we're generally all pretty bad at. But it is a noble practice to be humble enough to hold our ideas lightly and allow them to leave the family home and fend for themselves. For them to mature, after all, they must eventually go out. Another practice is to find the right balance between confidence and humility. Too much of either, and we can lose our ability to actively dialogue and question. And not enough of each, and we may sit back passively and wait for others to do all the heavy lifting. Sitting amongst greats at the political feast, amongst those central to the traditions of thought and practice that precede us, can be overwhelming. Responses may include timidity or insecurity, though we also see arrogance and an excess of certainty emerging as history is rewritten within the key of identity politics by some. Now, I've already mentioned identity politics a couple of times, and it's a topic that is too often caricatured, both by its proponents and its enemies. Certainly a facile reading of it is easy to laugh at, and I've done this myself. Off with his head! He was a straight white male! She has nothing to say, for she was a racist conservative. He was a bloody communist, and they should all be cancelled from history. By now, many will have noticed that identity politics is no longer the sole domain of ideologues on the left. It has predictably become a major force on the right too. Some even claim that identity politics is politics and always has been. Well, that's another one of those trite, rather lazy general statements that doesn't help us out very much. It's far better to say there has always been an element of identity operating in politics since the get-go. Well, yes, of course. The insights that stem from a critical reading of race or gender, for example, risk becoming mere caricatures to be ignored by those with less sympathy for identity politics or social change, rather than as a potential corrective if handled well and brought into relationship with different lenses. If left to their own devices, or the unsubtle mob on Twitter or elsewhere, or to young, impressionable minds captured by the fury and the excitement of battle, less mainstream political concepts and practices can too often be taken as a new kind of faith, and we end up with ideological capture as usual. For those proposing any kind of new idea or incredible social change, great vision is necessary. If you look at the history of modern politics, it often takes quite unique perspectives to understand how to apply theory in a way that will bring enough of the general populace on board to enact social justice, social change and a political shift. Another field of thought that is capturing the imagination of many young folks who are politically motivated is that of post-colonialism or post-colonial thinking and activism. Again, there is much to like about this, much to explore, and it provides an enrichment 
and a corrective to Western-focused thought and thinking in practice. But its application is often reactionary and unsubtle in ways that, of course, some are very happy about, but others, and myself included, are concerned about. For it's worth remembering that there is a world of difference between rewriting history and enriching and expanding our understanding of history. Observations about the misdeeds of past figures and current figures can be very important. And for all of us, evaluating and re-evaluating our heroes, as well as our enemies, is an ongoing necessity, both individually as we look at the inheritance that we received from our family, our education, and from the stories that run through our country and the groups that we grew up in, and generally from our ideational forebears, and also collectively in our developing and expanding understanding of the past. But, and how easily we forget this, we must have nuance and appreciation for context, or we risk being very stupid indeed. The truism that one should not seek to judge and colour the past with the values of the day is often forgotten. It seems again a no-brainer, and I think the vast majority of historians would agree with this, that we should take new perspectives as providing a more complete and more sophisticated picture to emerge. Don't erase history. Add the missing bits. To cancel history due to the failings of the past seems a very odd idea indeed, and I agree with the British comic Ricky Gervais on this. Don't tear down statues of our imperfect ancestors, such as Winston Churchill, because he was a racist. Simply add a line to the statue instead, so we get a more complete picture of the man, and we all learn as a result. Think about it. It could read as such. A great statesman in time of war, and a real bloody racist, like most rich white men of the time. Now there is a great pedagogical moment. Why would you want to get rid of that? Back to the table. The great practice then for all of us as we dine at the Great Feast is to learn to sit alongside the great thinkers and be impacted by their thought. As we accept the need to challenge, question and avoid receiving their ideas and insights as wisdom and uncritically. And this must include your personal favourites. If you dig Foucault, don't leave his thought unchallenged. If you fancy a bit of Lacan, trust your instincts and challenge his claims. This is no easy task. But it is essential. So that we avoid the all-too-common failures of reasoning and argumentation, such as the appeal to authority, as if Foucault's ideas were done and dusted, or even the complete take on a given topic. We must learn from our ancestors, but take things forwards, think beyond their limitations and the contingency and circumstances that flavoured and shaped their particular delivery of ideas. If we are Buddhists of some stripe working on identity, selfhood, and the grasping impulse towards a consistent experience of being in the world, allowing our enemy's thought to shake us, to disrupt us, to mess with our certainty and intellectual complacency, can be a very powerful practice indeed. Just asking ourselves, what if I or so-and-so were completely wrong? 
than what? Identity is so rooted in unquestioned global visions of the world that to question them, to undermine them, to ask what if, can be as powerful as any meditation practice you can think of. The feast is so lively at this table that it can be difficult to catch it all, or even the best of a single guest. But we don't need to get everything to grapple with an important insight or idea from history, or from our living guests. The great trends that run through history are, after all, bigger than the individuals that identified and explicated them. We can have a bit of faith in our own capacity to find our own way into these streams of human struggle creativity, exploration and desire. Even the great experts differ in their views and reach divergent conclusions. And to use a coaching truism, we must start where we are, with the capacity we currently have. And remember, yes, this too is another practice. There's so much food available here at the feast that you really can start with any dish you want. Maybe you'd like some social housing dessert. Or would you like a first course of a critique of globalization? Or how about a 21st century analysis of the pros and cons of communist thought? Whatever grabs you, go for it. The wonders of the Great Feast means that you can start where you want. Just keep going. Don't stop. And remember, it actually gets quite complicated pretty quickly. But again, we can see complication as a form of richness. Because to make sense of the political and the economic, we need many folks beyond the walls of politics and economics to take part. And this may provide you with different access points to satisfy your own particular interests. Many visiting greats come to the table and hover around for a while, from psychologists to historians to sociologists, biologists, philosophers of course, and many more will be necessary for us to paint a picture beyond the confines of one discipline. For much of our current thinking on and within these two fields is limited by the internal limitations of each and the narrow visions of humans and society burden the theories and practices at the table. And we can hardly consider economics or politics as true sciences, can we? They have long demonstrated themselves to be sites of faith, belief, even rapture, hero worship, and ritual sacrifice. Just ask Greece if you don't know what I mean. Again, we badly need our most gifted anthropologists to keep us on track as we investigate this most torrid, emotional, and consequential of collective human practices. Ooh, isn't it exciting? But it is also terrible. We all know the cost of bad ideas in the hands of the wrong leader. Hitler and Lenin are obvious examples. And today we have the utter incompetence of Orban and many, many others, including Aung San Suu Kyi and the Buddhist monk Ashin Wiratu in Myanmar, who have been terrorizing Muslims for some time of late and using Buddhism as part of the reasoning behind that. But will these folks be at the feast? Well, as they are living off the ideas of others, I don't think so. They are kind of like parasites feeding off of bad ideas and empty promises, and practicing identity politics in its viler manifestation, 
Because you see, whether we love or hate Anne Rand or Gramsci, they put together ideas within historical lines and traditions that span decades, if not centuries. They added or developed ideas or recycled them creatively, leading to new movements of thought or provided means for better understanding the complexity of our age. Libertarians feed off of the work of Rand and her objectivism, and even if we might hate her ideas, we have to accept that those ideas are part of our intellectual ecology, and they capture deep drives and urges within the human psyche, whilst responding to an historical moment that has not yet left us. The mere fact that there are large numbers of libertarians in influential positions kind of means we are compelled to make a minimum of sense of it. The same applies to communism. It's not enough just to dismiss it if you are of a different political persuasion. The fact that it endures, there are many that support it, and that there are still, more or less, communist regimes around the planet, that we really should know more about it, understand it better. Know your enemy and all that. But also, if you're serious about compassion, then better understand what drives regular folks to grasp at the odd promise of the libertarian fantasy of absolute autonomy and individuality, or, in the case of at least the ideal of communism, absolute togetherness, equality and sameness. Or you will simply ignore what you should be able to see more clearly, and, surprise, surprise, you will have little to offer in convincing any of them of their bad ideas or of your apparently good ideas. Yes, I know this is yet another practice, and no, the Buddhists were not mistaken. Compassion and understanding, empathy and tolerance do not mean acceptance of bad ideas or condoning evil or stupidity or injustice. And just to play the devil's advocate for a moment, recall that one man's evil may well be another man's necessity and one woman's idea of justice can easily be another woman's idea of absolute folly or hell. Politics is far older than our modern-day fantasies about how the world should or must be. Remembering history is perhaps one of the greatest demands of us at the Great Feast, because we are all creatures of habit, and the habits of history are so hard to resist, and they always seem to accompany the great forgetting. Eric Weinstein recently said something helpful in this regard on the Joe Rogan podcast. I don't want somebody's dime-store concept of utopia infecting our ability to make sense of the world. And I would add, limit what we can think about, talk about, or even imagine beyond the dead-end dichotomies of our age. As an example, I don't want Noam Chomsky to arrogantly dismiss Steven Pinker's argument for progress, as if it required no attention, or Pinker to casually dismiss Chomsky's theory of language, as if it were ready to be consigned to history. I want to hear them engage with each other and think beyond their existing positions so we can all learn in the process. But of course, if everyone is already decided, then there's nothing to learn, I guess. And we're back to the great divide between those so certain they know and that everyone else is just wrong. It does sound awfully like playground politics and posturing. And no, I haven't forgotten that mentioning Joe Rogan will trigger some of you. Get over it. You're wrong about him. No discussion. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm just messing with you again. So one table guest with impeccable manners, who we ought to sit and chat with for a moment, is John Stuart Mill. Some of you may have seen this coming. 
He is, after all, one of the great liberals and a great proponent of engaging with the ideas of those who oppose. He was also heavily opposed to tyranny, something we should all be acutely responsive to, both in terms of standing against it, but also in understanding it and how easily any of us can be seduced by its promises and unforeseen manifestations on the right and on the left. However you view Mill's contribution to philosophy and politics, he had a great mind and was a brilliant thinker, and was also honest enough to admit that his most famous work, On Liberty, was a joint production with his wife Harriet Taylor. No small confession at the time. He's also a useful figure for our contemporary activists, for his life mission was social justice, and he was vocal in calling for women's suffrage when in power and was a prominent anti-racist. In fact, he is something of an antidote to our identitarian age, for at the feast he is constantly reminding people to test their ideas and theories against the opposition and to examine their own arguments more thoroughly. One question he will repeatedly ask us is, how do you know that to be true? For this, he is a servant to a better feast. Some of his observations remain as sharp as ever today, and they act not only as a warning against the tyranny of public opinion, or tribal consensus, but as intellectual tools for increasing our own capacity to think, learn, and evolve our ideas and opinions beyond prescribed opinions and prescribed feelings. Progress in thought has rarely, if ever, come about through conformity to existing ideas. And this applies to Buddhism as it does to party politics. Creative dissent must be encouraged, and space for such dissent must be cultivated and protected. This is the side of free speech which keeps getting left out of current debate. Folks on the left and right need to allow for it. We also need to internalise the culture of dissent to combat our own cognitive bias, confirmation bias, and conformity to the status quo of our own habits of being as we resist the seductive comforts of group identities. Yes, this all rests on the notion that we as individuals are capable of thinking outside of our group, and thinking beyond our ideological capture. We may not get beyond ideology in any complete sense, but the malleable nature of ideologies, themselves not frozen in time or place, means we must choose to either be passive supporters of the status quo or willing participants in the shaping and evolving play at hand. Dare I say we all have a duty to each other to do this, or am I simply asking too much? Although On Liberty should probably be a must-read for any semi-intelligent member of a modern-day democracy, Mill doesn't get off scot-free. He was a flawed human being like all of us. Though a very welcome guest at the Great Feast, his ideas had their own limitations. Just as the right is currently suffering from an inability to transcend its own ideational commitments, the left is often betrayed by dysfunctional manifestations of its own creed. Mill may even be responsible for contributing to the more delusional edges of current liberal thought. To uncover one of the failings in his thought and its consequences on the political climate of liberals today, here comes one of our great modern thinkers, ready to tuck into some grub and offer up his own imperfect yet stimulating views. He often flies under the radar internationally, yet he is one of my favourite contemporary thinkers primarily for his sheer audacity and willingness to think beyond dichotomies and make those unexpected connections I mentioned at the start. 
not unlike the eccentric Slovenian philosopher and cultural critic Slavoj Žižek, he always seems one step ahead of everyone else in his examination of contemporary culture. I am talking about the Scottish philosopher and writer John Gray, a man who has navigated much of the political spectrum throughout his life and whose thought is richer because of it. He continues to write for left and right-wing magazines and newspapers. Love him or hate him, his lucid mind cannot be ignored. Gray sees our current age and the excesses of woke culture as encapsulated in the idea of hyper-liberalism or alt-liberalism. In considering Mill's work, in an article he wrote for the TLS, he notes that a defining feature of tyranny is the policing of opinion and wonders what Mill might think about the inheritors of the liberal tradition on university campuses and elsewhere. He offers up further critique of the myth of progress and highlights how liberalism very much resembles a religious creed and tends towards unquestioned moral superiority. Placed together, we have two of the more dysfunctional characteristics that define woke culture and that alienate so much of the general public. The policing of opinion is itself insipid as a process and can promote conformity and passivity. It is both overplayed and underplayed by different political persuasions. It is nonetheless a reality that requires our attention. Here, self-censorship and self-control in terms of what one says, feels and will express becomes interesting in our hyper-connected world contributing to the creation of lines of social conformity and signalling and what we might call, in keeping with the themes here, hyper-personas. In one sense, the old rules don't quite fit the new reality that we live in, so we probably shouldn't waste too much time imagining or pining for a return to how things once were. But at the same time, we do risk absorbing new tyrannical norms without even realising that we're doing so and accepting new forms of insufficiently critiqued doctrine. Again, ideas such as intersectionality or white privilege clearly offer something important for those analysing culture, race, history and our current age. But they are also areas of relatively new thought that are far from fully developed. And it seems that whenever they are critiqued, even constructively, ripe debate does not ensue, but rather hyper-personas throw about accusations, lines in the sand are drawn, and all too often big words like racist, fascist, misogynist, etc. are used to stifle non-conformists, who may actually be allies in the making. Like so much new theory, each can all too easily be presented as truth, rather than an all too human attempt to make some sense of complex phenomena. And when taken as truth, what happens? Well, you know the line, we inevitably fall once again into ideological capture, and these areas of thought become indoctrinational tools. So often, a lightness of touch would be sufficient to initiate critical reflection and constructive discourse. But in polarised times, and when identities are at the heart of everything, this is incredibly difficult to achieve. In fact, we should all know enough today about human psychology to understand why good intentions and well-motivated acts can quickly end up as irrational, destructive norms. The critique of the egalitarian moment by weary lefties and intelligent conservatives should act as an invitation to make appropriate compensations and enact change in one's thinking and in one's group. 
rather than descend into a fight over who is right or wrong. Remember that fragmentation I spoke about briefly a while back? Unfortunately, when the political is always personal, there is little room for difference. Or rather, there is only hyper-difference. And a tendency towards justification and intolerance emerges, honour wars return, and there is little hope for the growth of a culture of tolerance so necessary for highly divergent groups to get along and not descend into barbarism. Anyway, to entertain this kind of thought is not permitted amongst many on the left, just as it would not be permitted for evangelical Christians to entertain the idea that abortion should be a woman's right, or that Jesus might not be coming back from the dead after all. Some topics are simply too taboo. To return to John Gray and to hit on another controversial topic, at least for my fellow lefties, Gray goes on to reiterate in his text our first principle, that of complexity. Noting how simplistic readings of complex phenomena allows the modern woke left to pontificate from on high, whilst preaching incredibly simplistic readings of an incredibly complex world, all the while dismissing dissent from the new orthodoxy it is attempting to establish. We've all seen this, and even if you are deep within that world, you cannot deny that this goes on, because the struggle of warring tribes often means that the willingness to ignore one's own failings to see becomes all too permissible. Winning at all costs means nuance and subtlety get lost in small-scale ideological battles. Battles that most of the voting public does seem disinterested in, and in fact are often highly antagonistic towards. The right has long been clear in its irrational drives, and for this reason they have long been easy to critique. The left has been far better at hiding its own irrationality. Of course, we would all benefit if both sides tempered their irrational edges, that is, took care of their own excesses. The conservatives in the states are currently failing miserably to rein in their narcissistic leader. But they're not the only ones letting the whole side down. Conservatives are making a hash of it in the UK too. But if we look at the real world of politics, and if we look at democracy as including everybody of voting age, then you have to understand that you're either in the game to win it or you're not. And if most people do not like your most vocal and extreme forms, they're probably not going to vote for you. I think it's fair to describe these more extreme aspects of the left and the right as hyper. Hyper captures much of the mood of our day and with it the dysfunctional character of our current moment, with its obsession with the now and that great forgetting of context, history and of its hypercharged ideological visions of reality that are all-consuming and viscerally rich and therefore very very dramatic. I can't help but think that much of the outrage on the left and the right is actually a feature of hyper-reality. This very useful concept that indicates the inability of consciousness to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality. Just think about it. All of this online engagement is a simulation of reality. 
Simulations are conjured up and ritually sustained by the Twitter sphere, or the Fox News sphere, or the Guardian worldview, or the Daily Mail sphere, or the New York Times sphere, just to name a few. They are fed and maintained by in-group consensus and an obsessive focus on the parochial. Think about that for a moment. Have you noticed how much I've been critiquing the left? Whatever the left is supposed to be. Does that sit comfortably with you? Hmm. I imagine it doesn't in some cases. But good for you if you're sticking this out all the same. Again, can these thoughts be chewed over as part of the feast and as an important evaluation of our current political age? Or does the reactive heckling have to start immediately? You tell me. If your reactive self has already been enacted or triggered, why are you so easily perturbed by ideas? So far, we're just talking, right? Did you catch my point about the ease of critiquing the right, for example? Because it's been that easy for so long. For those that live in Europe, I think that's pretty darn clear. The left, though, well, we're supposed to be the better educated lot, right? We're supposed to be more cultured, well-read, sophisticated. We're global citizens, and therefore, implicitly, aren't we better than those parochial, nationalist, small-minded right-wingers? Well, we hide our shit far better than the right, but it still stinks like everybody else's. And if you think yours doesn't, you've got a way to go. Without playing left or right-wing politics, may I intervene with a practice question instead? To what degree does self-defense erupt as a powerful urge to assert your preferred interpretation of our age? You can sit with that for quite some time if you like, or bring it in whenever you get a very strong urge to start shouting at those with different views. How rapidly do you transform critique into mere evidence of your own unquestioned correct vision. There's another good question. What would happen if you did that? What might you learn? What could change? Or is it a case that all non-conforming views can only but spoil the dish that you happily feast on every day? For in a practicing life dedicated to the great feast, we are actually fortunate whenever a guest comes along and disrupts our certainties. For they enrich our world, and they allow us to see more fully, and within an understanding of epistemology which is far bigger than our parochial sense of knowledge, there is always the recognition that we don't get to the end of anything. We can only learn more, we can only make better connections, we can only become more sophisticated in our limited capacity to see and understand. John Gray, Zizek, but also a past guest of this podcast, at least in a figurative sense, Peter Schlotterdijk, are all great at this kind of practice. But yet note that we really have no need to adopt them as the great purveyors of final truths either. As devil's advocates, coyote tricksters, mischievous magpies, or court jesters, they can merely serve to remind us 
that nothing is as it seems on the surface, and that the mob, wherever it comes from, is rarely sane enough to do what is right. They remind us that there is always much more going on than what is visible. There is an art to this process, and many wonderful and creative ways for doing so. It's not only intellectual speculation. It's the rich material of exploring our shared cultural inheritance and its offspring, and we need a whole lot of room to do this well. What kind of room? Mental room, emotional room, experiential room. Personas, performative display, in-group consensus, ideological capture, all prevent creative expression and engagement with the rich history of ideas. Rather than grasp at the truths of a given tribe, welcome diversity. No, 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 not that sort that the less interesting conservatives are calling for, which many of you consider double-speak or simply code for they need to actually listen to what we're saying. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about engaging with myriad perspectives to transcend the dull dichotomy of the left-right divide on any given issue. We as a species are not practicing this way and are failing ourselves as a result. If you go through disenchantment with the American dream or the European Union dream or the liberal fantasy of progress or the conservative fantasy of pristine origins or perfect order, you are likely to go through a shocking experience. The same process can be deeply painful or disruptive to one's identity. And it's the same business, really, when you come to terms with the limitations and all due human forms of religion or spiritual practice, the sort we've spoken about with regards to Buddhism. There are many reactions that can occur when you come to see the limitations of your in-group. Aggression is a common one, as is depression, after the veil of illusion has been lifted. Total rejection is very common too. We don't have to leave our tribes to participate in an analysis of the current age and its demands. We can actually help our own tribes to evolve, just as this podcast seeks to act on Buddhism and take Buddhism as a living practice beyond the confines of tradition. We can do the same with our political commitments too, but it does take courage and it does take disruption. So, We cannot tackle ideological capture without signalling for Francois Laruel to join us for a chat. We could also ask Althusser to remind us just how seductive ideological capture is, as it hails us to act in unquestioning and obedient ways. The questions that we can ask of ourselves to help ourselves out of this kind of dynamic and the groups that we participate with are many. These are questions, again, as I mentioned in the critical turn, that can be brought into any kind of meditative or contemplative practice, as well as individual reflection and group dialogue. Just asking yourself, how am I obedient to the dominant ideological forces of my age? What do I receive unquestioningly from my Buddhist group, from my family, from my social group, from my political group? What do I gain by not questioning any of this? What power, what feelings does it imbue in my body, whether of victimhood or of being a saviour or of being morally righteous? There's a whole lot going on there. These are practices, as I remind you, that do not have to separate you from engaging politically in what you believe in. These are simply steps to become more knowledgeable, 
more mature, wiser even if we were to resuscitate that term. Another way of approaching all this is to say, how can we rescue the conservative urge from the unthinking right in order to preserve nature, to preserve structures within democratic societies which actually are functional and which actually do do good? How can we resuscitate progress in a time of dwindling resources and impending environmental collapse? How can we understand freedom and liberty in a way that is socially responsible? And there's a great question that's not being asked very often. How can we make use of the therapeutic trend within left-wing politics so that it's less self-centered, less focused on feelings of victimhood, and so that it's more balanced by a healthy sense of emotional and intellectual maturation? How can the left and right accept the challenges that identity politics brings without getting caught up in its dead-end trajectory? We're not all ready to be asking these types of questions, right? But it's amazing how quickly things can change and spread in our hyper-connected world. Instead of looking backwards to models that will save us, perhaps we should start to articulate new kinds of thought and practices that encompass more and more of what we know at the Great Feast. Freedom is a wonderfully abstract concept that Buddhists struggle with as much as anyone else. If there is no struggle, you're probably caught in someone else's fantasy. Because freedom is as ambiguous as the best of our abstract concepts, which makes it both fascinating and very, very far from being a gone conclusion. Freedom is almost always equal to our perceived state of entrapment. Even those wonderfully naive neo-Advaitans that natter on about the simplicity of the now and freedom within our grasp are caught in a form of collective fantasy. Just remember the religious conservatives currently dominant in America, while their ancestors, at least politically, that escaped Britain for the colonies, they were in search for a form of freedom too, right? Finding a better, more intelligent balance between the desire and instinct to conserve and protect and then the desire and instinct to include and change and make progress is an absolute must, in my opinion, for democracies to survive the 21st century. The broader trends of change that are taking place are actually where we can find each other. The common ground is where we can all overcome tribal differences. But like all complex relationships, compromise and sacrifice are necessary, along with a shared willingness to evolve together and constantly strive to better understand what is real and outside of our projections. We in the West were sold a lot of promises by democracy, capitalism, progress and liberal thought. If we're honest about it, almost all of us are struggling with the reality of great change at the global level. We might even say that the far left and the far right are essentially unconscious reactions against the forces of globalization. Both our desire for it to do certain things and not others, and by the loss of much of what was or what had become normal in terms of a promise made by the societies we grew up in. The complexities of globalization need to be understood far better by the left and right, but also by, I would suggest, a political imagination that transcends both 
which is partly why I've been going on about the things I've been going on about in this whole podcast episode. Why is it that so few of us have enough imagination to think beyond the dichotomies of the last century? Really, think about it. But don't settle for the first or even second answer you get. Because the answers are multiple and they all need profound thought, reflection and nuance and compassion. Small-scale thought is obsessed with the local. But if we think globally, there is much that is being demanded of us. But there is much that could be imagined differently. The thoughts I've been sharing today are not my own, of course. Yes, I put two and two together and managed to get to six, but I did so by drawing on the resources available at the Great Feast. And as always, there are plenty of other people thinking the kinds of thought I've been sharing with you today. In fact, if you were to see it as my thought or the material of just this podcast, you'd probably be missing the whole point of the feast. We think and feel together, right? As part of the attraction of the tribes and of identities. What is it that allows us to think and feel together at multiple levels of social interaction? These are all great questions. They're questions that many people are asking. And if we ask them together, and if we ask them more often, and in different ways, and from different perspectives, and within different types of discourse, surprising answers may come about. I have great faith in my fellow humans. That's it. That's the end of the political turn. It is done. Yes, I could have gone in many directions. This is the direction I ended up in. I hope that some of you find something useful in all of this. And uh, to the next time. Guests coming up will be tackling political themes for sure. But many of them are within the key of Buddhism, practice and philosophy. Bye for now.